I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Bonsoir. Je m'appelle Stuart Brand. And Alexander Rose is going to uh, introduce the speakers tonight, so I get to introduce the long short. And it relates to something you can uh, conjure with a little later this evening. After our adventures underground in Paris tonight, there'll be a reception over in the Long Now Museum and shop and office and bar to be. Spirits, uh, various kinds of things that jack you up and sideways, like coffee and tea, and conversation and discussion. What happened is Alexander Rose noticed that the space is fabulous uh, on occasions like this, evenings after talks here at the Call Theater. But frankly, most of the time during the day, it's really quiet in there. And most evenings, it's really quiet in there. But one of the peculiarities of being on federal land is that you don't need to get a liquor license to sell a license. <laughs> so let's roll this, uh, this video. Alexander Rose, the director at the Long Now Foundation. I'm excited to tell you about a new project we are working on at Long Now. We would like to invite you to help us build our new gathering space. We opened our small museum and bookstore here in Fort Mason in 2006 to show some of our projects like the 10,000-year clock, the seminars about long-term thinking, and the Rosetta Project. Since then, we have seen some of the best connections and conversations about long-term thinking at our receptions and gatherings. So in collaboration with our partners here at Fort Mason and the amazing design build studio Because We Can, we have designed a salon space that will not only house our prototypes and a hand-curated library, but also serve locally roasted coffee by day and inspired cocktails by night. Open daily, this space will be a venue for salon talks, demonstrations, and collaborative events. But now, we have to raise the funds to build it. We would like to engage you, our friends and members, along with some amazing local artisans in a campaign that is hopefully as compelling for you to participate in as it has been for us to create. St. George Spirits in Alameda has created two exclusive spirits for us. Each one is truly a distillation of long-term thinking. The first is an aromatic gin made with juniper berries harvested by hand among the 5,000-year-old bristle guns from our site in eastern Nevada. The other spirit is a whiskey with a specially tailored grain bill. It will be fermented and distilled in such a way that it will be delicious without aging and grow more intricate and complex with every year. We will bottle a small amount each year for the next 15 years, allowing you to taste its annual progression. Each of these spirits will be kept at our space for you in the Japanese bottle keep tradition. 
They are stored on permanent display in a custom vessel by Adams and Chittenden. When you arrive, the bartender will lower your bottle for you to enjoy it straight or mixed in a cocktail of your choice. We are offering two levels for you to participate, the Founders Bottle and the 15-Year Whiskey Club. But just to be clear, this space is about more than just coffee and cocktails. The goal is to build a social space to help make long-term thinking more automatic and common rather than difficult and rare. We are excited about bringing you all together in a new space and a new conversation. Please join us and help us build it. Thank you all. Uh, these levels are not uh, low levels, um, but we do encourage you to go in on them. The, the Founders Bottle, where it's a, a, some of this bristlecone gin that they have made, uh, where it's kept for you up in the ceiling in the uh, kind of like a chandelier of liquor, uh, is $1,500. Um, we encourage you to go in on it with other people if you want to. Um, some, also, something, some people are having their companies buy it so that uh, their employees can enjoy it when they come there. Um, and the 25 or the 15 year whiskey club is $25,000. There's only 12 of those available. Um, but hopefully if uh, once we reach about half of this fundraising goal, we're going to start construction and we'll be uh, we hope to be able to pull it all off this year. So, thank you. Tonight's uh, speakers are you know, normally we have a single speaker, not two. Um, they were kind of hard to come by. It seems my whole life I've heard about the Paris underground uh, catacombs and how amazing they were, and in some cases I've gotten a chance to, to see little glimpses of them. Uh, and I was dimly aware that there were groups that were kind of hacking into them, but it really wasn't until I read John Lackman's article in Wired that I realized that what the Paris urban experiment was doing was fundamentally different than uh, all the urban explorer groups that I'd ever seen or heard. Um, they were actually undertaking cultural heritage restoration without permission. And as we all know, permission is basically impossible to get, but forgiveness is usually much more, uh, much, much more available. Um, and these guys have taken that principle to a new extreme that, that I had never seen before. And uh, that, that they were seeing the cultural fires burning on these artifacts over, but they were seeing the kind of catastrophes that we usually see in an earthquake, they were seeing them taking place over decades and not only just seeing it and recognizing it, but intervening in a very positive uh, and careful way. And so I realized this was very much a long now topic, especially because one of their restoration projects was a clock. Um, and so I knew I'd, I had to get them here, uh, but there's kind of a fundamental problem in a secret uh, restoration group is that they are secret. Um, and so I got in touch with some friends of mine at Wired who then got in touch me with, uh, got me in touch with John, and, and John said, yeah, I've been getting a lot of requests to contact these guys, they don't answer them, uh, just so you know, but I'll forward it on. Um, don't get your hopes up. And uh, the next day, I, my cell phone was ringing and it was a Paris phone number, uh, and it was Lazar, and Lazar uh, said that he thought Long Now would be the perfect place for their one and only public uh, presentation. So that was my response. Um, 
the, uh, the other challenge of this presentation is that Lazar and the whole group uh, are uh, very much, they, they, they actually work in a very small section of Paris and very few of them speak very much English. His English is, uh, is a little better than, than my French, which isn't saying uh, an awful lot. So he and John wrote a presentation together. John is going to uh, give the presentation. Lazar is going to run the slides that they put together, as well as a, a really great video. Uh, so bear with us. It's not, uh, it's not the usual type of uh, presentation, but the content is amazing. Um, and I really appreciate you coming out. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming out tonight, everyone. Uh, welcome. Thank you, Alexander, for that uh, great introduction. And I'm just going to dive right in. Um, we want to talk tonight about cultural heritage. So what is the, this strange idea, cultural heritage? Well, we'd say cultural heritage refers to a multitude of objects, sites, and even concepts that all share a particular designation, that is to say, they are all considered to be important symbols of some civilization, living or dead. These symbols don't perfectly illustrate the culture that gave birth to them. They just mark a few points along its contour. The objects described by the umbrella term heritage represent just a few rescued fragments. Of course, only a time machine could offer a complete picture. Therefore, cultural heritage must be defined as traces that reveal the construction of our civilizational present, traces that survived either by chance or because our ancestors intended them to, which is to say that they engaged in long-term thinking. The clearer and more numerous those traces are, the more we have to compare with our present era, and the more precisely we can see our possible futures. If we fail to try at least as hard as our predecessors to preserve that heritage, well, we condemn our children and our grandchildren to myopia, if not total blindness, regarding their own future. But let's get down to brass tacks. Whose job is it to conserve heritage? When we speak of cultural heritage, we generally speak of it as belonging to someone. It's a nation's heritage, it's a region's heritage, it's a city's heritage, etc. This manner of speaking can lead you to believe that all cultural heritage has an owner, a city, a nation, a continent, if only a temporary one. We think of this heritage as being passed on from generation to generation, sort of like a family heirloom. But the timelessness of heritage destroys that possibility of designating a true owner or owners. In truth, heritage only has managers, people who can't profit from its use the way they could if they owned it, but people who must nonetheless assure its survival. So whether we talk about ownership or responsibility, the question remains, whose is it? Whose ownership, whose responsibility? The beginnings of an answer to this question can be found in the expression world heritage, which is used most notably by UNESCO. And what this expression world heritage suggests is that the more important cultural heritage is, by virtue of its artistic richness, or the importance of its information, or its remoteness from the present, or its rarity, the more important it is, the more widespread 
responsibility for it is shared. An extreme version of this argument would say that all physical and oral testimony of the paths taken by the human race is valuable to the entire world, and thus is the responsibility of all people living today. Now, there's a less extreme version of that argument that's arguably superior, and the way that argument goes is the less a piece of global cultural heritage concerns all the world's cultures, the more locally its responsibility is shared. In this case, responsibility for it falls on a reduced circle of individuals who are linked to that heritage by relevant cultural preoccupations. So allow me for a moment to schematize and caricature a little what this implies with a hypothetical example. Take a uh, village bell tower. Now this tower is unlikely to persist and survive and transmit its, its historical and architectural content to the next generation. It's unlikely to survive if the villagers themselves aren't given and don't take responsibility for that conservation. But this less prestigious heritage, such as the bell tower, which we could call minor heritage, is it really of minor importance? If you tallied up all the world's cultural heritage, you'd find that the minor pieces form the vast majority of the whole, not just in number, but also in diversity, in richness of information, and in ability to give us the most precise possible image of our past and our evolution. So minor heritage represents not just the largest portion of global cultural heritage, it's also the heritage that touches individuals most directly. Now, unfortunately, the conservation of cultural heritage usually pursues a fatalist objective, which is to say, to let as little disappear as possible. That's usually the objective. But this objective leads inevitably to a notion of prioritization or triage in a rationing of efforts made to conserve each piece of heritage, famous or not. The most common approach that conservation takes is to privilege the most prestigious pieces of heritage found in a given region or culture. And the problem with this approach is that what's most prestigious today isn't necessarily what will most interest men and women of tomorrow. For example, as Stuart Brand has described in his writings, for certain periods of ancient Chinese history, we have hundreds of records of the religious philosophical thought of the time, but yet not one record of what men's and women's lives were actually like at that time what they ate for breakfast, whom they loved, how they loved, what they thought of the politics of their day, so on. And most of us would gladly trade one of those religious philosophical texts for one of a different kind. So if it's true that we can't know what will interest future generations, what's even more true is that over the very long term, absolutely everything will eventually be of interest to someone. <laughs> and it's truly pointless to try to figure out what today will interest the men and women of tomorrow. And so on some level, absolutely everything deserves to be conserved. And every time one chooses not to conserve something, something is lost. Our selection process may seem to have a kind of logic, but ultimately it's arbitrary. It arises post hoc, most often, as a kind of rationalization that serves to make us feel better about the choices that we've already made. So we mustn't pretend that nothing is lost when something is deemed not worth saving. We have to accept the uncomfortable truth that there's no truly rational way to decide what should be saved. Now, at the same time, 
choices must be made, of course. To, conserve, to try to conserve everything is ultimately to conserve nothing. So all that said, our descendants will be most likely to thank us if the things that survive are as diverse as possible, as numerous as possible, and as direct as possible in their testimony, which is to say we should strive to save things that provide firsthand material evidence of what life was like back then. The most famous pieces of heritage don't necessarily deserve to suck up all of our conservation resources because the most famous pieces are the most brilliant artistically and historically and thus the most rare, the least representative, and thus, in some sense, the least educational. So considering minor cultural heritage in this way necessarily leads to the following question. If the term minor cultural heritage is defined as that which is visible to relatively few people, what should we call heritage that is visible to absolutely no one at all? <laughs> heritage that has been completely forgotten about. Invisible heritage? Non-visible heritage would be a more appropriate term because the state usually isn't incurable. It's not an inborn thing. It results, rather, from a confluence of circumstances that end up removing the heritage from view. In some cases, this heritage may still be technically visible to the eye, but no one notices it anymore. So, non-visibility need not be permanent. It's only non-visible for a time. Non-visible heritage may not represent the majority of heritage, but like minor heritage, it is very diverse and deeply enmeshed in its local context, and therefore very valuable. Now here, the question of who is responsible for conservation is quite different. When we talk about non-visible heritage, well, there's a certain paradox in talking about it, which is to say that in order for us to talk about it, there must be some exceptions to its non-visibility. There must be people somewhere whose gaze has wandered into the shadows, who have perceived its value as a witness to an era or an historical situation, to knowledge that's gone or disappearing. To discover who's bear, who bears responsibility for this non-visible heritage, we must proceed by elimination, and the answer becomes immediately apparent. This responsibility can only fall to those people for whom this non-visible heritage is in fact perfectly visible. Now let's return for a moment to the general question of who's responsible for conservation. Now, it's somewhat regrettable, but in almost all cases, responsibility and the conservation tasks that responsibility entails, that responsibility is not spread out evenly. Now, what usually happens is a system is employed, and for some good reason, wherein the public designates or appoints a group of individuals to be in charge of conservation and to be in charge of prioritizing conservation goals. But in the case of non-visible heritage, who will appoint someone to conserve it? Its existence is by definition known only by accident and by at most a handful of people. The notion of being appointed obviously does not apply in this case. However, in practice, the vast majority of people who accidentally discover some piece of non-visible heritage, they never think of helping to conserve it because they feel they lack a mandate. They feel that no one has granted them permission, no one has appointed them. So this fact condemns these objects to a slow but sure death, and this non-visible heritage becomes disappeared heritage, 
And you can surely see the difference between those two states. One is reversible, other is not. The problem here is that people have overgeneralized the very logical and practical system of appointing conservators. The system is unfortunately exclusive, and any idea that doesn't fit into it is considered inapplicable. And this leads to paralysis when it comes to non-visible heritage. But does that systemic vice make it acceptable for us to let disappear such important heritage? What would remain today of the historical record if this fatalism were applied systematically? How can we wriggle free from this problem, though? How can we prevent neglected and insufficiently known heritage from disappearing? One very simple seeming solution would be to research non-visible heritage, document it, and publicize it and make it visible in the hope that educating the public would lead automatically to conservation. Now, this method's primary defect is that publicity attracts curiosity seekers, looters, and vandals, well before it motivates institutions that are capable of caring for that heritage. The authorities inevitably arrive after the tourists, and whether the tourists are well-intentioned or not, they lack a strong commitment to the site's preservation, and so they inevitably denature or, in some cases, completely destroy that heritage. Making non-invisible heritage visible is more risky than useful most of the time. Why don't these tourists possess a strong commitment to preservation? Well, you could say it's because they lack proximity. They aren't close enough to the heritage. They don't see it as connected to their existence, to their here and now. You must perceive heritage as connected to your here and now in order to feel that it's natural for you to try to preserve it. And that's true whether you have a short here and now or a long here and a long now. Tourists see only one moment in the site's history when they arrive. And a single snapshot can only serve as a kind of exotic entertainment. Only when you possess a series of snapshots spread out over time do you possess something more than entertainment, that's when you possess a tool. Then you have a kind of film instead of a static image. You can see history unfolding in time. You have a tool that permits you to see how the site has evolved and the ways in which it might continue to evolve. If you have that historical perspective, and if, furthermore, you, this site is part of your environment, it's something that you see regularly, then, in that case, you can intervene in the site's history you can identify what's worked well at the site and encourage that development toward the future. Likewise, you can perceive what's not worked and endeavor not to repeat those errors. You naturally take a much more vivid interest in the site, but this film is only a useful tool if you think of yourself as a character in the film and not just a spectator. If you don't feel empowered to intervene in the evolution of your environment, you lose interest in its history and indeed, you barely even perceive the fact that you have a tool at your, at your disposal. And a tool that goes unused is a tool that rusts and becomes completely unusable. So opportunities to intervene don't exist everywhere. One stumbles into them as often as one finds them on purpose. But what is sure is that if you don't take advantage of the opportunities that do come your way, some heritage probably will never get another chance to survive. Now, if you do intervene, if you study the heritage and the glimpses it offers of the past, you can help ensure a future in which that heritage will survive and will continue to play an active present role in people's lives. 
using the past in the present ensures that in the future, the past will be very much present. Now, unfortunately, the truth is there's no blanket solution yet developed for preserving this kind of non-visible heritage. And when solutions do appear, they're always tied to a particular context. So we need to study some specific examples. Of course, none of these examples are silver bullets, but the more closely we examine them in their contexts, the larger our toolkit grows. And that toolkit can help resolve those situations when there's no ready solution at hand. So, first example, in the United States, consider the case of John Haber, Stephen Frescos, and Scott Hefner, three skilled infiltrators of abandoned sites, such as disused factories, abandoned theme parks, and so on. With time and experience, they've added another activity to their exploration activity. They inventory and document sites and objects of historical importance that are on the verge of demolition. For example, the IX-529C Shadow, which was America's first stealth ship. An expensive, experimental, and never used craft. The Sea Shadow is 28 years old. Few, if any, civilians have ever seen it, with the exception of this trio. They infiltrated its high-security dry dock in Suisun Bay, California, and there they passed several weekends visiting this ship and the 80 others alongside it, which formed the so-called mothball fleet, ships that the Navy no longer uses and is slowly scrapping. The sea shadow itself is slated for demolition, even though really few other objects can convey the scale and the secrecy of the Cold War. So this kind of industrial archeology span is a great example of self-granted responsibility and contextual problem solving being used to prevent the total and irreversible disappearance of cultural heritage that has had the misfortune to fade from view. Now, before I proceed to the next example, I need to make a general observation, which is one reason why non-visible heritage is non-visible and neglected in the first place is that most public things are neglected today, not just public spaces, but also public action, public reflection, the very notion of the public, the, no, that, the notion of collectivity. Now, what I hope the next example will show is that if you back up a little bit and attack the broader problem of the neglect of the public sphere, you resolve nearly automatically all of that problem's consequences. The consequence that interests us most is the neglect of minor and non-visible cultural heritage. So the next example concerns some 30 years of history and it's about a group of people that started making use of neglected public space, not for conservation at first, but for all kinds of other activities. And the conservation arose more or less by accident, in fact. The more this group used these neglected public spaces, the more its, it's, the more its affection for these spaces grew, and the more familiar it became with neglected and decaying non-visible heritage inside these spaces. Now, I can't summarize in a few minutes this group's entire 30-year evolution and its complex context, but I want to review some highlights. So let's begin at the beginning. In the early 1980s in Paris, a small group of middle school-age students in the Latin Quarter conducted UX's first experiment, although they didn't realize that's what they were doing at the time. 
uh, they let themselves be locked inside the Pantheon after hours. So the Pantheon is this building in the Latin Quarter that uh, used to be a church and is now a monument to national heroes. So this excursion into unauthorized territory opened their eyes to the possibility of a sort of reconquest of the city's neglected areas. Certain favorable geographic and historical factors helped that experience to become the first in a series of consecutive experiments that took on the name Urban Experiment, UX for short, and these continue to this day. UX's numbers grew quickly uh, and subgroups appeared, centered on the various possible uses of the urban fabric. So I first want to talk about uh, La Mexicaine de Perforation. Uh, this is the name of the UX subgroup devoted to artistic events, concerts, plays, exhibitions. La Mexicaine explores every possible way of harnessing neglected urban sites for innovative events. Its best known work to date remains its annual clandestine film festival. <laughs> um, this festival's most distinctive feature, besides its clandestinity, is its method. The way that it places films in comparative perspective by linking them together in the same evening. So they show two or more films in the same evening, and using this method, they reveal in an intuitive manner certain essential yet hard to perceive elements of the films being projected. They see that there's important connection between these two films, and they show them to you in the hopes that you will grasp it, but they're, they're not explaining it to you. It's supposed to be more of an intuitive process. So, the, the Mexicans' first film festivals mostly took place late at night in Latin Quarter cinemas, but then the French Cinematheque, located at the Trocadero, became the site of the group's flagship festival. The Cinematheque was founded in Paris decades ago in order to restore and conserve old films. This temple to film had tremendous symbolic value for them, plus a very convenient location in the heart of the Chaillot Palace, all of which made it the most welcoming site for this annual summer film festival, which was aptly titled, and you'll have to excuse my Spanish pronunciation, which is almost as bad as my French pronunciation, um, and that's it's titled La Session Comoda. One evening, during a viewing of Chris Marker's uh, La Jete, certain members of La Mexicaine realized that a certain room in the Chaillot Palace that holds plaster casts uh, was in fact the very same room that they had used, that the group had used to get people into the Cinematheque. And this was the set that the director had used for his film. And this exceedingly serendipitous coincidence a kind of mise en abîme, as they say in French, which is sort of like the funhouse mirror effect, right? This inspired them to create a new festival exclusively dedicated to views of the city. And this festival was to be situated uh, backstage, as it were, in spaces where one sees the backside of the urban stage set, the hidden side. 40 meters away from the Cinematheque, 40 meters as the crow flies, or you might say as the mole digs, um, the group constructed a complex of underground rooms sandwiched between the palace's basement, the number nine subway line, and some old quarry tunnels. And they equipped it with a little screening room, a bar, a dining room, and various other amenities. Uh, this site, which they baptized the Chaillot Arena, 
sheltered until 2004, this festival, which they called Urbex Movies. Unfortunately, on August 23, 2004, an anonymous telephone call alerted the authorities to the fact that something strange was going on underground. The police busted into the Shio Arena, which fortunately was empty at the time, and to their very great surprise, which was matched only by their very great incomprehension that such a thing could ever exist, they found the cinema. And of course, news of this extraordinary find leaked out rapidly and forced UX for the first time in its 23 years at this point to defend its existence publicly. To prevent rumors from crowding out the truth, they had to resign themselves to answering questions from annoying journalists like myself. <laughs> and um, of course, while they were doing this, they were quietly smuggling out the entire, uh, entirety of the cinema right out from under the authorities' noses, who thought that they were keeping an eye on the site. Right? All this equipment was surreptitiously relocated to a spot that UX had been using for a very long time, the site they'd been using for the longest of any site, the Pantheon. So while it was figuring out how to project films in this site, a building that, of course, was not designed for film festivals. Um, Mexican resumed one of the first things it had ever done at the Pantheon, which was clandestine theater. At the premiere for one of these productions, various UX members arrived to give their support to La Mexican to see the production, and also they took advantage of the occasion to uh, resurvey the site, uh, which they hadn't given a close look in some time and they discovered that the monument had degraded badly in those years in a number of ways, but most particularly its clock, had, its monumental clock had degraded. And this attracted the attention of one UX subgroup in particular, uh, the one called Untergunter. And now you get to hear my German pronunciation. Uh, <laughs> so you might not guess it from the group's basically nonsensical name, but Untergunter is the UX group uh, that investigates how to conserve non-visible heritage and carries out that conservation. It's difficult to say exactly how old Untergunter is. Um, when did UX begin conserving heritage? Well, it's a really interesting question. You could say that conservation begins at the very moment when you develop an affection strong enough to lead to conservation. Uh, but even that isn't quite right. It's impossible to say when exactly conservation begins. It's a fluid process with no beginning and no end. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, say you're in one of your favorite underground workshops and there's a stone wall that's listing and threatening to just like fall on top of you one day. And of course you start saying to yourself, hmm, I guess I need to do something about that wall. Um, well, I could tear it down, I guess build a new brick wall, I don't know, that would be the easiest thing, but it would kind of ruin the feel of the place, the aesthetics, the history, etc. So what do you do? Okay, you start reading about this kind of stone wall, the history of its construction, the method of its construction, how do you restore it? And at this point, you've already begun the process of conservation without even realizing it. So uh, as UX began to explore and to use Parisian urban spaces, the group began to become aware of pieces of non-visible heritage that were badly in need of conservation. And it began to develop an affection for these things too. And this heritage really ceased to be non-visible in their eyes. They saw it very clearly. 
And so Unter Gunter, which typically focuses on one site per year, they had not planned to devote 2005 to the Pantheon's clock, but their accidental discovery of its sorry state uh, inspired them to change their plans. The pro here's the, the problem, is that if you leave a mechanical object immobile for too long, you let it oxidize for too long, eventually it becomes unrestorable because in the process of deoxidizing and taking the oxidation off, you inevitably remove some of the original object and then if you remove too much of it, its properties change and you end up just having to create a facsimile instead of restoring the object. Um, so this realization of Unter Gunter is that this clock desperately needed attention. Um, to just sum up, this discovery resulted from its continually ob observing and maintaining the neglected heritage, together with its permanent occupation of an abnormal, abnormally large swath of urban terrain. So, in September 2005, this near-dead clock's urgent need for intervention left them with an obvious choice. There was no choice at all. I mean, they had to do it. So almost immediately, Unter Gunter undertook a clandestine restoration of the Pantheon's clock under the direction of UX group member and Parisian clockmaker Jean-Baptiste Villot. And in order to be able to do this restoration on site, he and his comrades installed a temporary clock restoration workshop in the base of the monument's dome, very high up in the building. Uh, in an area known as UGWK. And after a period of uh, initial research, documentation, preparation, uh, after that was completed, they disassembled the 19th century mechanism, brought it up to their workshop, and began the restoration uh, properly called. And over the course of one year, completely unbeknownst to the monument's guards and other employees, uh, <laughs> Unter Gunter came and went by day and night uh, and restored this amazing 1850 Wagner clock to its original brilliance. Once this work was finished, they decided that it would really be a shame for this now perfectly operational clock to not keep time in this mausoleum for national heroes. I mean, you know, the dead have a particular need to know what time it is. Right? And, but to whom could they entrust the task of winding the clock once a week? They can't let them, even though it may seem like a small job, they can't let themselves accumulate new chores after every restoration because um, they just pile up. So working by process of elimination, they decided they had no choice but to suggest to the monument's director that he filled this noble function. <laughs> and as they suspected, he loved the idea. Uh, unfortunately, his superiors did not. And uh, he told them, which he should not have done. Um, the Center for National Monuments, which oversees the Pantheon, among other sites, fired the director and sued Unter Gunter. Now, fortunately, um, there's no crime of clock restoration in French law. <laughs> Nor is it a crime, unlike in some countries, it is not a crime in Paris to trespass on public property. It's considered to belong to the public, right? <laughs> right? 
So the administration lost its lawsuit, and Unter Gunter was acquitted, and there was another consequence, uh, which is that the necessarily public nature of a trial once again obliged UX to explain its position uh, to the public. So um, since this incident transpired just three years after the whole Shio Palace cinema discovery affair, UX decided to undertake new precautionary measures, and I'm happy to report that since then, they've had no other problems. Uh, Unter Gunter and La Mexican have both successfully resumed their invisible and clandestine activities. And the trial had one other upside, which is that uh, by making public certain aspects of UX's existence, it became possible for the group to assemble from its archives a film, a film that you're about to see. I know it can be hard to form a concrete picture of what UX's different experiments are like without witnessing them. So I hope this illustration uh, will make it easier for you. So with that introduction, here's the film, which is titled Pantheon User's Guide. Tu vas prendre de l'autre côté, Manu Thank <laughs> you. 
les deux cordons, tiens ça ça va avec tiens range ça, ça et ça Marc, ça se passe bien Et voici la sonatrice d'un parrain combat Moses en a peur Applaudissez-la Applaudissez la patrice du gonfle Maintenant, jeunes gens, jeunes femmes, à vos masques, maintenant de la poussière, du vent, de la radioactivité, des crânes rasés Maintenant, à vos masques, arrêtez de rire Projection
à droite. Ah oui, ça, je en haut à droite. Ça, je vais régler ça, bougez pas. Non, 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 ah non, 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 c'est moi. Euh... Le chef-d'œuvre Mamoru Mushi décrit les états d'âme d'une femme flic cyborg euh, qui recherche euh, la vérité sur ses origines. Et ensuite Dark City, un AV américain bien sympathique où on le découvre que l'évolution urbaine est un concept universel. Voilà, tout est dit. Projection
C'est bon, tu tiens ouais. Ok.
C'est bon. To conclude, let's return to what you might say is the central question posed by this clock rescue operation. How is the clock doing today? You might be surprised to learn that the Pantheon's clock has returned to its former occupation and is once again immobile and slowly oxidizing away. Indeed, the Center for National Monuments has forcibly kept it immobile, even though it is, as you know, now perfectly operational. The fact that the administration lost its surrealist lawsuit did not at all inspire it to reevaluate its behavior, let alone atone for it. So, what can we take away from this example? What lesson can be drawn from this experiment? To what extent did it contribute to the preservation of heritage, to the preservation of traces of our past, however minor they may be? Well, perhaps the lesson is that even failures can prove productive. This clock won't return to its 2005 state of degradation for several more decades, even if it does remain immobile. It will eventually degrade again, assuming no one intervenes to preserve it again. But that couldn't really happen, could it? Thank you. Yeah, let's bring that. Uh, let's put uh, Lazar here in case I got any questions in French. Can I be heard? Hello, hello. Good. That helps. Um, people who uh, speak or write French are welcome to write questions in French and send them up. And I will be baffled by them and hand them to Lazar. <laughs> First of all, Kunstmann, artist. Are, this is basically all artists? C'est toi qui réponds? Non, non, vas-y. Ok. Euh, non, 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 c'est pas un groupe, euh, Luc, c'est pas un groupe artistique, c'est un, un groupe de gens qui réalisent des expériences ensemble. So it's not a group of artists. 
uh, it's really best defined as a group of people who conduct experiments together. Scientists. Oui, l'expérimentation, c'est un aspect scientifique, mais c'est pas forcément scientifique. It's not necessarily scientific. It has a scientific aspect. Um, speaking generally, the people who have been doing this are what in their ordinary life, in their day jobs? All walks of life. To put your It's a secret. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> 30 years is unusual for anything to continue. Businesses don't usually last that long. Um, how young were you when, were you at the beginning, 30 years ago? A une année près, oui. Within a year of the founding, yeah. Uh -huh. And the group of people uh, must be somewhat different over time. So is it the same group of people for decade after decade? Non, il doit y avoir un tiers environ euh, du groupe original qui est resté. So, there's a third, yeah, a third of the group is people who were there from the beginning. Um, but people have come and gone. How many people? <laughs> <laughs> This is the most interesting Q&A session. <laughs> Uh, a gentleman named uh, Alex asks, what if you accidentally break something? <laughs> so, you know, there you are repairing things, but you guys are, you know, heavy equipment, underground, fragile stuff. Je pense que si on cassait quelque chose accidentellement, ça ferait juste plus de travail, parce qu'on aurait deux choses à réparer. La chose qu'on est venu réparer, plus... Donc on va éviter. So, uh, they're very careful. If they break... <laughs> If they, if they break something, then they've got twice as many things to repair and conserve, and so... There you go. Um, Danielle from Long Now asks, can UX happen anywhere, or does Paris have a unique ability to let your activities happen through its history, culture, architecture, uh, that it's not a crime to trespass on public land? Is Paris unique in this? C'est plus facile à Paris que où on peut faire ça quelque, euh, quelque part d'autre. J'en ai aucune idée, on n'a jamais essayé ailleurs. Hein. <laughs> They've never tried anywhere else, so they're not sure. <laughs> Et qu'une seule solution pour le savoir, c'est d'essayer. The only way you can find out is to try. Yeah. So, uh, it's been public since, I guess, 2000, and when did you do your article? So that was uh, about a year ago. More than that, surely. Anyway. Um, but since it became public with the trial and so on, have there been other groups and other places doing things like this, do you think? Underground San Francisco. La publicité, ça a inspiré quelqu'un, quelque part, à faire pareil? Si ça l'a correctement inspiré, il s'est inspiré du même mode opératoire, c'est-à-dire qu'il est resté discret. Donc. Il n'y a aucune raison de le savoir, en fait. Donc, oui, si 
There are hundreds of such groups, I understand, and they're, they're all... <laughs> Yeah, what do you got for me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. A gentleman saying, named Joe, it looks like, or John E. says, if I know someone who does similar illegal restoration here in San Francisco, would Lazar like to meet them while he is here? <laughs> Not here si il si y a quelqu'un ici à San Francisco, mm -hmm qui fait pareil, mm -hmm. euh, as-tu envie de se rencontrer mm -hmm. Oui, bien sûr. C'est d'ailleurs comme ça que l'UX fonctionne, c'est par agrégation en fait, de gens qui font des choses compatibles. So, c'est so how UX grows, mm -hmm. um, is that ah. um, it's by aggregating together people who are involved in similar activities Um, most of the growth has come about because the group has noticed people who are up to something mm -hmm. that they saw as compatible with their own activity, and they then initiated a discussion about joining forces. So uh, the, the most kind of dramatic aspect of this is the underground aspect. And Paris seems to have an unusual amount of Paris below ground in these neglected spaces and so on. But could you say something about that? Um, il paraît que Paris a uh, tellement uh, beaucoup uh, d'espace, uh, su, uh, surtout uh, sous terre, mm. et que ça. Quoi Tu peux dire quelque chose uh, là-dessus Oui, ça, ça fait partie des contextes favorables, c'est-à-dire qu'il y, y a un contexte historique euh, qui fait qu'il était très facile de se rendre dans, dans ces souterrains, qui mm -hmm. sont nombreux, qui étaient utilisés par des étudiants depuis longtemps pour des fêtes ou des choses comme ça. Et puis, il euh, y a la densité aussi des souterrains. Euh, tu veux traduire Oui, vas-y, vas-y. Donc, une des favorables conditions qui a aidé UX à grow est que, oui, il y a un nombre tremendous d'espaces sous terre qui sont certains d'entre eux très historiques et intéressants, et il y a une densité à eux aussi, où ils sont juste... Vous pouvez... Oui, vous pouvez rencontrer a large number of them in a, in a small area. Le plus important dans, dans, dans ces souterrains, c'est pas tant qu'ils soient nombreux, c'est le fait qu'ils soient proches les uns des autres et donc qu'ils puissent connecter entre eux. Right, so the, even more important than these areas being numerous is the fact that they are all so close together that they can easily be interconnected. And so the group has over time created interconnections between all of the various Uh, spaces that exist underground, and so they can do almost anything that they want to do. They can get from one place to another, circulating completely underground, never having to go above, above ground. That's very attractive. <laughs> J'ai une question en français, donc je vais la lire en français. C'est dans, dans certains marques euh, qui dit pourquoi est-il écrit sans issue sur la porte du directeur du Panthéon Est-ce pour son professionnalisme Je te laisse traduire. Oh, so why was it written uh, on the Pantheon director's door, sans issue, uh, meaning, you know, no exit, right? Dead end. Um, uh, forbidden to enter, yeah. Right, so, um, but that wasn't the direct, c'était pas la porte du directeur, oh, oui, c'est ça? Ah bon. So, uh, S, <laughs> I thought it was the security room, no. S pour son professionnalisme. 
Je pense que la question répond elle-même à sa propre... La réponse est incluée dans la question. And he then made the mistake of telling his superiors. Is that how it played out, or a little pas, more complicated? Pas, pas exactement. Je, je pense que il a euh, non, il a été maladroit dans le sens où il en a parlé pas à ses supérieurs, mais à peu près à tout le monde. <laughs> uh, so, he told he told everyone <laughs> what had happened. And, he was and, so proud. Yeah? He was probablement. Mais euh, le, le problème, c'est que son son petit adjoint euh, qui s'appelle qui s'appelle toujours Pascal Monet, voulait sa place et qu'il a bien su instrumentaliser le procès pour, pour l'avoir. Right, so yeah, the, the real problem was that his deputy um, wanted his boss's job and took advantage of this opportunity to slide his boss out the door. Yeah. Bad, c'est moche. What happened to the director? Is he still a friend of uh, UX, or who knows? No, je crois même que tu avais essayé de le contacter. Yeah, I tried to contact him when I was writing my article without luck. I mean, he basically was sort of pushed into early retirement, and uh, no one's heard from him since, I don't think. <laughs> Harry Holler asks, many urban exploration groups, that's interesting, have sought publicity and or notoriety, you have not. Pourquoi? Pourquoi tu pas chercher la publicité? On la cherche pas, mais s'il y a un procès, c'est quelque chose de public. Right, so they, yeah, they, mais, mais pourquoi tu veux pas la publicité? Ah, parce qu'on est clandestin. Si, <laughs> euh, si, si, on, si on veut faire de la publicité, ce qui peut être très bien pour, pour certaines activités, euh, la structure groupe clandestin, ça ne correspond absolument pas euh, aux besoins d'un groupe qui a besoin de publicité. Dans ce cas, il faut faire, euh, je sais pas, une association loi 1901, une, 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 so, une société. Right, so Noted. I remember when the Navy SEALs were a clandestine organization. <laughs> that, that changed. Um, question is, do you have blueprints? How do you find your way around? Are there maps, uh, charts of the underground? Are there uh, blueprints of the buildings? Or do you create your own maps? Non, la plupart du temps, en fait, enfin, le, les, les plans... Ça, c'est la, la phase préliminaire qui a, qui a eu lieu dans les années 80. C'était la récolte des plans et, et des clés euh, qui existent déjà la plupart du temps. Donc, euh, lorsqu'on veut utiliser des sites, il vaut mieux faire simple et s'inspirer des plans déjà existants, euh, quitte à les renseigner après. So, one of the first things the group did in the 80s was to gather as many maps uh, mm -hmm. as they could. And for the most part, there were uh, maps to be had uh, if you knew how to get them. Um, And you know they did a certain amount of work in sort of collating them all and integrating them all and um, making them work together. 
Um, but they, yeah, there were uh, maps. But as far as they know, no one had ever actually gone and tried to assemble them together into one big map of underground Paris. Uh, Tess says, what is UX for? Do you consider it a public service? The, the, the things you said, it sounded like this was, in, in a sense, a public uh, function. Non, ça ne peut pas être un service public, ça ne peut même pas être quelque chose qu'on pourrait qualifier d'utilité publique, puisque par définition, sauf accident, euh, tous les projets restent euh, clandestins, donc le public euh, n'en profite pas. Lorsqu'il s'agit de conserver des choses, c'est pour pas qu'elles disparaissent, mais pas forcément pour faire en sorte qu'elles soient connues du public. Right, so um, they don't think of themselves as a public service. Um, they do these things because they want to, and uh, they're sort of basically inhibited by, the, by being a non-public organization. They can't really work for the public. Um, you know, it's, what they do is, they try not to do things that would be harmful to the public, mm -hmm. um, but they're basically just pursuing their own objectives. Jamel asks, uh, so we've heard about the clock, we've heard about the uh, underground cinema. Are there other projects from the past that you can talk about or describe? <laughs> I expect there'll be a, another group that follows these guys around. And, uh, Richard Lee asked, was the movie, movie uh, Hugo, uh, the book and movie uh, Hugo, uh, was that inspired by UX, do we know? It's kind of the whole underground clock fixing, surreptitious. Je l'ai entendu dire, mais je ne l'ai pas vu, donc je ne peux pas vraiment en parler. He hasn't seen it. He doesn't. <laughs> oh, exactly. See it. I think you'd like it. Many, I was part of the Hackers Conference back in 1983-84, and um, and it became a continual thing that went on for now many decades. But the age of the hackers at the Hackers Conference basically gets older by one year per year. <laughs> and there's, there's yep, some young people coming in, but, but not so much. It's mostly an, an old group. Is the age of your group getting older as time goes by, or is there young recruitment coming in? Je pense qu'il n'y a, a pas vraiment de, de tendance de. de enfin, c'est assez disparate au niveau de, de l'âge. C'est comme Tintin, c'est de 7 à, 7 à 77 ans. Euh, mais euh, non, bah, ce, qui, ce qui est sûr, c'est qu'au début, bon, ça ne concernait qu'un seul type de personnes, des gens qui étaient très jeunes, puisqu'ils étaient au collège. Euh, mais euh, avec le temps, ça s'est diversifié. Donc il n'y a pas une, une tranche d'âge particulièrement présente. Ou... So... Um, members range in age from 7 to 77 and um, you know they began at a certain you know with a certain age bracket which is to say 12 to 14 year olds hmm. and um, but at this point basically there's a wide diversity of ages and there isn't really one particular age bracket that dominates that's very unusual that the actual the age the cohort would, would not only get older but they, they would grow in, in, in age to younger than originally and older than originally. That's pretty interesting. Laura Welcher asks, 
Any recommendation for preservation of intangible cultural heritage? Um, Laura, what do you mean by that? Digital stuff? Comment préserver euh, des choses qui ne sont pas, n'existent pas physiquement, ils sont soit euh, digitaux ou je ne sais pas. Ah ben ça ça c'est euh, à lui qu'il faut demander ça. Euh, <rire> c'est un problème. Euh, oui, c'est un, un vrai problème. Ce qui n'est pas, ce qui n'a pas d'existence physique, euh, qui n'est que de, de, de l'information des données, beaucoup plus complexe à préserver pour des, des questions que vous avez évoquées beaucoup plus que nous. Dans les choses qu'on va... Ce qu'au ce que, ce que, sein de l'UX, on peut essayer de préserver qui n'est pas matériel, c'est plutôt de l'ordre des techniques, donc le, de l'ordre du savoir-faire. Donc c'est plutôt uniquement par, le, par la pratique qu'on va les préserver, par le fait de les utiliser, mais pas Part de la collecte d'informations. Okay. <laughs> so, um, preserving things that are non-tangible um, uh, is started out by saying, well, it's a very good question, very difficult, and you probably know better than he does how to do it. Uh, one thing that they are particularly interested in is preserving things that are not uh, objects but are uh, skills that are skills. trades that you know crafts that are you know uh, in danger of disappearing so some examples yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay um, there's some artists here I can in fact art historian Scott Ethersmith asks was is UX influenced by the situationist works activities of the 1960s and beyond non, 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 pas, pas du tout, parce qu'il n'y a, a pas de, il y a pas de, de manifeste ni d'intention ni, ni artistique ni philosophique. C'est un groupe qui n'existe que par une série d'expériences qui conduisent à d'autres expériences. Il n'y a pas de but. Euh, C'est ce qui fait la longévité d'ailleurs du groupe. Right, so, unlike say the situationist UX has no uh, end goal. There's no manifesto be it philosophical or artistic. How to manifest, though? How do you live? <laughs> it's, it, exists, it exists basically to continue exper experiments and experiences. C'est des expériences qui se, qui se perpétuent d'elles-mêmes. Right. So chaque experience expérience s'appelle... Right. Each experience leads to the next one. It's a, it's a consecutive series. It's a process. Paying attention to cultural heritage, as you do, Do you have a sense that you are part of a continuity going back in what you do as well as what you value? Um, tu te perçois, vous vous percevez, uh, être dans une tradition qui, uh, qui remonte uh, très très loin? Um, pas, pas, pas forcément, mais euh, ce qui est sûr, c'est que l'idée même de préservation est une idée assez... D'abord, qui connaît plein de formes euh, très différentes, et qui est... Euh, si le, le seul fait qui reste des traces du passé aujourd'hui, c'est bien qu'elle euh, a, elle a, est apparue sous des formes très diverses, 
et depuis très longtemps. Enfin, L'idée de préservation, ce n'est pas une idée. C'est quelque chose qui est en deçà du seuil d'évidence euh, à partir du moment où vous avez euh, euh, conscience qu'il qu s'agit de votre euh, passé, de votre, euh, de, de, de votre environnement. De votre... So, the idea of preservation, of conservation, is a very old idea. You know, they certainly see a continuity with that, although he would argue that, that conservation is not even really an idea. It's just something that naturally arises when you develop an affection for something. Or bury it and forget it. <laughs> so in a way, this is revived affection that, that, that you guys do. And things are forgotten, they're neglected, and then you find them and fall back in love with them, which is an interesting discontinuity of through time. So you're finders. Tu me traduis <laughs> Oui, euh, il dit qu'il y a une un dis discontinuité euh, euh, qui est intéressante, c'est-à-dire que des choses, euh, des gens, ils, ils les aiment, mais ensuite on les oublie, et ensuite euh, quelqu'un les aime encore. Et oui. Je pense que la oui, c'est ce qui a dû arriver à la plupart des choses qui, arrivent, qui viennent du passé et qui arrivent jusqu'au présent. Right, so, yeah, anything, by definition, anything that survives to the present has to be continually renewed, has to enjoy continually renewed affections. This is a rare public event for you. Um, to what do we owe the honor? Why are you showing us this video and talking to a public audience here today? Pourquoi, pourquoi ça t'a intéressé de venir ici um, Pourquoi Rangnam Parce que c'est mon... Moi, je ne suis qu'un porte-parole. Donc, quand mon groupe me dit « Vas-y, je vais... » Et tu, tu n'acceptes tous les invitations. Pour, pour, pourquoi est-ce qu'ils ont... C'est plus mon groupe qui l'accepte que moi-même, personnellement. Hum. Euh, parce qu'à partir du moment où des choses sont déjà connues, euh, et que les évoquer ne, met pas, enfin, ne rend pas plus compliqué l'exécution de, 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 des expériences, des travaux de l'UX, et que ça rentre dans un discours plus large, euh, et que ça peut y contribuer d'une manière positive, il n'y a pas de raison non plus de, de ne pas le faire, dans le sens où euh, un groupe clandestin n'est pas une société secrète. Il, euh, il, euh, il ne communique pas, mais à partir du moment où quelque chose est déjà connu, il n'y a pas de raison de continuer à les cacher plus. Ouais. Okay, so a clandestine group is not a secret society, and when they can talk about something because it's already become known, um, they're happy to, especially if they can contribute to some kind of positive discussion that could result in, in positive things. So the group decided together to accept this invitation, and hmm. since Lazar is the uh, public face of the group, the uh, spokesperson, he came. Why did you come? Because <laughs> <laughs> he insisted. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. This has been a great honor, a great pleasure. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member. 
at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.